Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Today is such a basic message, but it's one of those messages I feel is especially important on this Sunday. I'm not sure why this Sunday. I just feel like the Lord is saying this is the day that is going to be so significant in many of your lives. Um, You know, it was one year ago, I was at a a retreat uh, with pastors of the ministry that I'm part of, Poyman Ministries, and I got a message from Luke Frechette in Newport that you had just lost your pastor one year ago this week. It was on June 3rd. And that, over the next few months, I began just talking to the leadership here. I spoke a couple of times, and then I eventually became your pastor. And so that's been a year. It's been a year. And I didn't remember that. I knew we were getting around the time. And I was driving here this morning, and the Lord reminded me of the date. Uh, Illegally, I got my phone out and checked my calendar, and I was exactly right. It was June 3rd this week. And so I've been biding my time for a year before I could really tell you the hard things. Are you ready? Bring it. Okay. (laughs) Not everyone said bring it. Yes. Okay. Now, here's a question. You like questions? If God is love, which is the basic premise of the entire Bible. And if God is willing to freely give us eternal life and enter into his peace, why do we make it so difficult? Say amen. Amen. Why do you people? (laughs) Oh, there's fingers pointing at me. Why do I make it so hard just to daily experience the peace and grace of God. Now, you probably know in your own life the struggles that you have, but there are also some common struggles that we have. And I love it when we get to look at other people struggling and be a little bit judgmental of them, right? (laughs) So are you ready to do that? There's two stories that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 10, Uh, a scribe or a lawyer, which is an expert in the law of God. He comes to Jesus with this morally superior question. Have you ever known people like that? We're going to be very judgmental of this man. All right, because I and you and I are not like this at all. And then we're the quiet brother hanging out in the background playing video games. But she is struggling to know how to relate to Jesus as well. What's fascinating to me about both of these stories, the lawyer and Martha, who is just a woman with a sincere question. They're both going after Jesus, but neither one of them is listening. And I have done that. I ask God for answers and I don't listen or I don't like the answer I got. 
Let's start with the first one. We're going to pick up at Luke 10, 25. A lawyer with a question. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you've answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Again, it's always interesting to look at these stories because we are so morally superior and we know the answer. It's like, why can't you figure this out? But we're looking at ourselves and the very same things that we struggle with. A lawyer is a scribe or an expert in the law of God. Now, throughout the Old Testament, it was the scribes who would take the, the documents, the scrolls of, of Scripture, and they would copy them by hand over and over every letter, every punctuation. They would look at it, and between themselves, they might even say, well, what is your reading of the law? They would discuss these things. So when Jesus says, what does the law say? What is your reading of it? He is talking to him, scribe to scribe. He's, asked, he's used to this kind of discussion. Jesus asked, <clears throat> or he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus simply just says, tell me what you already know. I think God has said that to me a few times. Terry, you already know the answer. The man answers correctly, but there's still something quite amiss, which is me too. That's you. We know the answers, but we know something's missing. I can't quite put my finger on it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you have answered rightly. Here's the missing piece. Do this and you will live. I often know what is right, but I don't want to do what is right. Now, all Jesus is doing, he's not He's not being judgmental of this man. He's not trying to expose him in front of everyone. He's really trying to bring him to a place of clear understanding. He's letting the man sort it out. And frequently God asks us questions, not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he wants us to think about it. Adam, where are you? Like God can't see around the bushes and through the trees. And so when Jesus asks him a question, the man doesn't say, oh, wow, I, I never figured that out. I need to go do this. Who is my neighbor wanting to justify himself? 
That's what got exposed in the discussion. The man wanting to justify himself said, well, who is my neighbor? In other words, Jesus, I I would do this, but I'm confused. Who is my neighbor? And at that moment of revelation, which we have all had, at that moment, we have such clarity that I have a decision to make. I'm either going to accept this conviction and change my thinking, which is what it means to repent, to change my thinking, change my direction, or I'm going to excuse myself and keep doing what I was doing. I accept the accusation or I offer an excuse. That's Romans 1, 2, and 3, especially Romans 2 says this. That even Gentiles, Paul says, who never had the word of God. And people say that. Well, what will God do with people who have never heard the gospel? And Paul clarifies in Romans 1 and 2 that God has put uh, the knowledge of him in every person's heart. Whether by creation or in our conscience or by the revelation of Christ. That's Romans 1, 2, and 3. Creation, conscience, Christ. So people who don't know about Christ, they still have the first two, don't they? Anyone can look around and say there must be a God. Or even evolutionists talk about the wonder of creation in the cell. Really? Did you mean to say the wonder of creation or the wonder of the design in nature? Well, design doesn't happen by random chance. And then those who don't even have the law that tells me what's right and wrong. Our conscience tells us. And so a conscience, conscience means with knowledge. Every person doesn't know everything of right and wrong. And Paul talks about that in Romans 7. But we all are aware it's wrong to steal. It's wrong to lie. And so Paul says, even the Gentile who doesn't have the law knows these things in his heart and his own heart accuses him. And he decides whether he is going to repent or excuse himself. That's the, that's the challenge. And if I don't want to repent, I have to do something with that conviction. Those are the little things you tell yourself when you don't want to repent. And we tend to do a couple of things. We either lower God's standard. Have you ever done that? There's not much eye contact going on right now. (laughs) We lower the standard of God and there is a standard saying that people say, well, No one's perfect. As if that makes it okay. The fact that everyone is sick doesn't mean we don't all need a doctor. It's called a pandemic, an epidemic. 
well, since everyone's sick, it's okay. So we either lower the standard of God, or sometimes we even do as this, this lawyer does, is he tells himself, well, I can do it. I have achieved it. And both of those are not going to get the job done. In other words, they're not going to make us right with God. And here's the thing. God is willing to freely give us forgiveness of sins and give us eternal life. Here's the thing. God is doing it freely. Why? Because we can't do it. That's why the gospel is called what? Good news. It's called good news because everything else I tried on my own effort to be right with God didn't work. Your doctor said, calls and says, guess what? I have what? I have good news. Do you want to hear that call? I have good news. The gospel is good news because everything else that you have tried to be right with God didn't work. And so here's the thing God is saying, I'll let me do it. Let me do it. I will do it for you. The sin that has separated you from me. I've offered my son for God. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But the fact is my pride wants to take some credit for having made myself right with God. And well, I, I love John three sixteen. It's the heart of the entire Bible. I could quote John 3.16 to you every Sunday and never get tired of it. It sums up everything for God. It begins with God. So love that tells me the heart of God. What does God do because he loves? He gives. He gave his only begotten son born of the Holy Spirit. To die on a cross in my place. Because you see, we were, we were sentenced to death because of sin. And so he became the substitute for me and for you. That one substitute was sufficient for the sins of the world. He became the propitiation for our Sins. You know what the word propitiation means? The object of God's wrath. What seems easy to us, can it just be that easy that God gives it to me and I just accept it in faith? Well, what was, what's easy to us cost Jesus his life. It's not easy. If you say it's easy, you don't understand what Jesus did for you. He is the substitutionary atonement for your sin. The substitute for your sin. 
So I'm convicted of the sin that I suddenly see in my heart, and I either repent of it or I excuse it. I repent or I excuse. God knows that we can't see the condition of our heart. We're blind to the very things that are holding us back. And so it's actually the law of God, the Ten Commandments, that are designed to reveal what's in our heart. Now, us guys, we love tools. You know, my, my son-in-law, I have three sons-in-law, but one of them is remodeling his bathroom, his master bath. And he's the kind of guy that if there's any project, that means he's going to go buy some tools. Say amen. Amen. And that means not just one. I'm going to go for the tool I needed, but these other tools were on sale too. So I'll probably need them. And after all, honey, I don't want to have to go back to Home Depot five times. I'm, I'll just get them all right now. So there's like 10 Ryobi tools up on the table and my (laughs) daughter's master bedroom. It's like, like their decorations or something, a whole table full of tools. I love tools because tools get the job done. They go, they, the right tool is amazing, right? Many, many years ago when I was newly married, my wife and I were newly married 40 years ago. Um, We couldn't afford furniture, so I learned to make furniture. And I was amazed at how cabinet makers could join wood together, two pieces of wood together, and just make it look as if it was one piece of wood. I was like, this is this is a miracle. And then they showed me, well, here's the tools and here's the the doweling jig and we're going to glue it together. And here's the, the, the sander and the planer. And I'm going. I just went and bought those things. And I love tools. We all love tools. My wife got her tools in the kitchen. Thank God for mixers so we can have chocolate chip cookies within 10 minutes. (laughs) X-ray machines that show us what's in going on in our bodies. Went to the dermatologist a couple of weeks ago. I don't, I feel like I'm not going to get through all my notes today, but is that okay? Cause this is good stuff. <laughs> because I grew up in the sunshine, Los Angeles. Uh, and I'm pretty pale skinned here. Um, there's all this stuff that, you know, is on my skin now that I have to see a dermatologist for. And I went and saw her two weeks ago. And I hate that because she looks at me and goes, Oh, that, That's got to come off of there. Now, she's saving my life by cutting things off that I can't see. I look at it and go, I think it's okay. Just put a little duct tape over that and call it good. If we just cover it up, then it's okay. And she goes, no, I think we're going to have to remove that. I was actually still waiting for the test, son on something she removed, but I feel pretty good about myself, but she just knows more, more than me. 
Now, all of that to say the law of God is a tool given to do a specific job. The job is not, if I keep the law, then I'll be right with God. Because guess what? The law is perfect and you are not. You are the other P word, pathetic. (laughs) The law of God is, say it with me, perfect. If I want to cut a straight line and a piece of wood, I am going to get a straight edge, not a crooked edge. I'm not going to do it freehand and go, well, that'll be pretty good. I feel that it was a straight line because it's not. I cannot draw a straight line with a pencil, no matter how much, how sincere I am or how pretty close it is. I always need a straight edge. And because God is trying to make us right with him. He's trying to help us see what we can't see so that we will then say, I need help because I'm not going to ask for help until I see how pathetic I am, which happens a little too often. You're nodding your heads when I'm talking about how pathetic I am. That's not okay. That's not going to work. Let me tell you three things that the law of God does. Number one, it reveals sin. It reveals, it's like the x-ray machine. It reveals sin in our lives that we can't see. Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, Paul talking about himself. He said, I would not have known sin except through the law. Or I would not have known covetousness. Unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. So hearing the commandment that said, thou shalt not covet, brought up in Paul this desire to covet. Don't you hate that? Do you know how that works? That's when you're walking down the street with your kids and there is a newly planted lawn and there is a sign that says, what does the sign say? Stay off. Do not walk on this grass, little boy. (laughs) But there's something in us. I didn't even want to walk on the grass until I saw that stupid sign. I'm just going to put my foot over there. Don't tell me I can't walk in the grass. What is it about us that is perfectly in line until we hear the, the sign, the commandment? Don't do that. My little grandsons. The hand, don't touch that. You're trying to protect them. And so that rebellious desire is there, even when it's dormant, even when you're smiling at me on a Sunday morning. I know what's in your heart. The law reveals sin. Secondly, the law restrains sin. 
the law restrains sin. Galatians 3, 22 uh, and forward, it says, but the scripture has confined. Do you know what the original word for that is a word that gives us our English word quarantine. The scripture has quarantined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were kept guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. Talking about Old Testament times, keeping Israel restrained from going crazy. They were given the law until Christ came into the world and they would believe on him for salvation. The law restrained, restrained the nation of Israel. And thirdly, the law requires a sacrifice for sin. The law requires a sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews 9.22. This is not the scripture I gave you, Nick, uh, but you guys can write this down. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It's the law that tells us what is wrong, but then it's also the law that then gives the basis for a penalty for breaking the law. When you drive down the street, there are posted signs of the speed limit. And because it's posted, then when you break the law, the judge has a basis for which to, to impose a penalty on you. Because God is fair and just, he gave the standard. Here's the law. And when you break the law, here is the punishment. The punishment is death. For having sinned against God and breaking his law. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were a temporary covering for sin. The word is cover. And the word for atonement in the Old Testament is not removing. It's not cleansing. It's the word that means to cover. It was a temporary solution until The son of God would die for our sins. And that word for atonement is to cleanse. If I have a virus in my body, I don't want to treat the symptoms. I want it completely removed. I want it completely removed. The man was convicted of his sins. When Jesus says, what is the law? What's the reading of the law? He gave the right answer. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus says, great. You gave the right answer. Go do it. That was the moment of conviction and he wanting to justify himself said, who is my neighbor? He acted ignorant. He wasn't ignorant. Now here's the thing. God's not trying to make him feel bad. Jesus is not trying to just condemn him or just heap judgment on him. Jesus is trying to get him out of this thinking and this system of religion that is really keeping him from knowing the love and grace of God. Do you see that? 
we're not discussing these things with people just to win an argument or make them feel bad. For God so loved the world, and Jesus even said in John 3, 17, that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. So that's not what he's doing with this man, trying to condemn him or just make him, you know, feel guilty. So many people who have grown up in church are trapped in a way of thinking that's actually keeping them from experiencing the love and grace of God. Did you know that? It is the religious system that we are often so familiar with. Maybe we even have the right answers. We have the right Jesus. We have the right gospel. And there, now there's, of all of the New Testament books in the New Testament, did you know that every one of them except one, extra points if you can guess which one, everyone except one has a warning against false Christians, false teachers, false Jesus, a false gospel. Everyone. The only exception is Philemon. So we get, we get, kind of into this sidetrack discussion. Now it's wrong of us to point out if something's wrong or if there's doctrinal error somewhere, we're not judging people. We're trying to save people. If something has gotten into our thinking or our teaching, that's keeping us from knowing the love of God. I mean, not in theory in, you know, in, you know, saying we, we can be born again and still be racked by fear and guilt, can't we? I hate that, that Christians would be, people would be born again and still not know the peace of God. What's, what's wrong? Something's wrong because God is not trying to withhold from us. He's trying to take us to that place where we actually do experience his love and his peace on a daily basis. So Jesus tells him a parable. Pick up at verse 30. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. 
again, Jesus is taking him a little farther. Remember, a parable means to lay alongside a, 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 a plain truth that he can't see or doesn't want to see. So Jesus says, let me tell you a story. The story, he can, he can see it clearly. I can see a story where I can't see my own heart and I can give the right answer. But, oh, I see it and I go, oh. So you see, among the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. It was racial. They never had any dealings with each other. The Jews lived in their areas. The Samaritans live in their areas. And of these three, the Levite and the priest were Jewish men who didn't do what is right in loving their neighbor. And yet it was the Samaritan. There was no question. It was the, the evil Samaritan. You know, Jews would look at Samaritans and say, they, God hates them. And yet it was the Samaritan who actually did what was right. If you were to ask any Jew in that day, it was automatically in their thinking that Jews were right with God simply because they were Jewish and everybody else was going to hell. And in fact, they really believed that God made Gentiles just to send to hell. Now we contrast this superior lawyer, an expert in the law of God, who knows what's right, but doesn't want to do it. Now with this story of Martha, and it's just a, a brief little section here, but it really fits with, with our passage. Verse 38, it happened as they went, he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Don't you love that tone of voice? I'm sure it's exactly like I hear it in my head. Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. I can hear Jesus' tone of voice too. Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. It's easy to be critical of Martha, because I know none of you are like Martha. Martha is what we might call a task-oriented person. And I know there's a few of you here. Now, I feel especially moral superior, morally superior because I'm not task-oriented. So I am just better. I'm just better, okay? I don't have character flaws. But a task-oriented person, for what this is worth, you feel your value, your worth from what you do. And now, we need Martha's. Or nothing would get done. I fully acknowledge that. But she, 
invited Jesus into the house. And so she has the opportunity to hear from Jesus and she misses it because she's busy with her tasks. That's what I want you to hear. The lawyer is busy excusing himself. Martha is busy doing things and both of them have actually kind of gone after Jesus, but they're not getting, they're not hearing. Now, the truth is, we can see ourselves in these stories, can't we? And what I want God to help us with is, what is it about my heart that keeps me in a state of worry rather than a state of peace? Because the problem is not on God's side. He freely gives me his grace. And in fact, that's a very definition of grace. It is unmerited favor. A couple of things that I see that we, we people in our culture or society do. Is that we see the gift of God's grace and we say, oh, I can do that. I'll be so committed that I will enter God's peace. And that's the lawyer who says, what must I do? You can't do anything. There's no work you can do. It's your pride that wants to pat yourself on the back and say, look what I did. It's really offensive to our pride to feel like we can't do anything. I want to feel better about myself. And yet to see that there's absolutely nothing I can do to receive God's grace offends me. And I have seen over the years that God is patient with me to bring me to a place where I stop being offended. It usually requires some amount of suffering, a crash where I really see what I'm really made of. And I stop pretending that I have something to offer God because the truth is I don't. Other people that often fail to enter into God's grace are so damaged by life that they think this gift of grace doesn't apply to them. And actually that was me for most of my life because I'm the child of an alcoholic and childhood abuse stays with you like that, that even though you read the scriptures of this free gift of grace, you just automatically think, well, that I, I believe it's true, but it doesn't apply to me. Both of those patterns of thought and ideas are rampant in our culture. I can achieve it or it doesn't apply to me. Do you think that one of those fits you? We could work out some other ideas. What I want you to know today 
is the gift of salvation along with the ongoing gift of peace is a free gift. And if you're not experiencing it, God wants you to see this and change your thinking. Repent. Not to make you feel bad or condemned, but just to see the truth. And what does the truth do for us? It sets us free. The truth might offend you. The truth might hurt. The truth might hurt you. Or maybe the truth is something that you think doesn't apply to you because you're damaged. But as we close today, um, I want to do more than just sing a closing song and say, man, that was a great message today. I want to ask that you might take this step of faith and just say, Lord, would you heal my heart today? Because this life of anxiety or worry or feeling inadequate, I'm not good enough, or I'm really good enough, it needs to change. It has to stop. It's not going to serve you. You're going to go round in circles. And either one day you'll finally come to the truth or you'll just walk away because you'll get so tired of feeling bad about yourself. So I'd like you to stand with me. Worship team's going to lead us in a song, but I'm going to ask that my prayer team come up right now, not after the service. And if you would like any of them to pray for you, I'm going to invite you to just come up now. If you'd like to stay in your seat, that's fine. But I just want to exhort you to say today's the day. Um, In my pastor voice, in my loving tone, knock it off. Okay, kids, did you hear me? Let God cut the chains of old things and give you peace today.